The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Well, our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Christopher Moore. Chris is a graduate of Campbell University, Campbell University Divinity School, Duke Divinity, and Baylor University. He's the author of Apostle of the Lost Calls. Chris, thank you for joining the conversation. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Andy. Thank you for the invitation. Well, uh, before we get to this book, uh, tell us a little bit more about you. Yeah, well, um, Christopher Moore grew up in uh, eastern North Carolina, um, grew up in a, in a context where uh, the Civil War was just kind of the, the air I breathed. Actually, I grew up not far from uh, Bentonville Battleground, which is the uh, largest land battle uh, ever fought in North Carolina. And so uh, I guess you could uh, say I was a self-styled Civil War buff, but uh, then went to uh, Campbell University, uh, studied religion there. Uh, And it was at Campbell that I first came across uh, Charles Reagan Wilson's Baptized in Blood and got um, ignited this insatiable curiosity in me about the lost cause and public memory. And um, uh, then went to divinity school at Campbell uh, and found 
a way once I, I, I got to Duke to actually combine uh, two of my, my passions, my, my study of religion uh, and then uh, study of the Civil War. And that led me to uh, look specifically at how uh, religion interfaced with public memory, specifically uh, post-war Civil War memory. Uh, and that developed, and, and fortunately at Baylor, I was able to, uh, to work with, with Doug Weaver and uh, able to uh, craft a project on uh, J. William Jones uh, and wrote this book, The uh, Apostle of the Lost Cause, which, um, which for me was, uh, there was some autobiography there because I was certainly um, you know, wrestling with uh, the way that, uh, that I've remembered things, the way that uh, many people have uh, in, the, uh, in the South. And um, so it was a good opportunity, very uh, soul-searching, uh, eye-opening, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Well, we do have to go back to Campbell for just a second, because uh, I would be <laughs> remiss if, if we didn't bring up the great Glenn Jonas, who uh, oh, you know, fostered uh, within me a, a, a great sense of love for church history. I always loved history, but kind of this fascinating uh, intersection of, of faith and history. Um you know, so so we do have to give all all praise and honor to the great Glenn Jonas uh, for for his wonderful work. That you know, uh, absolutely. Can... He 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 was the one who introduced me to Charles Reagan Wilson. Uh, actually, he he just mentioned uh, baptized in blood in passing in an undergraduate class, uh, and that uh, set me uh, on the path I'm on now. So for good or ill, it's Glenn Jonas's fault. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, let's dig into the book uh, a little bit. So, um, as I mentioned earlier in the opener, the name of the book is Apostle of the Lost Cause. This work uh, examines how the work of one Baptist minister shaped the post-Civil War narrative of the South, how it justified its history, and uh, iconized the leaders of the Confederacy. Give us a snapshot uh, into the central figure of this book, uh, J. William Jones, and, and why you chose to write about him. Sure. Uh, J. William Jones was um, grew up in Louisa County, Virginia, and uh, eventually became uh, one of the, the, the prime disseminators of um, what we call the Lost Cause mythology. Uh, he actually, uh, to give one more plug to Baptized in Blood, uh, Charles Reagan Wilson actually dedicates a chapter to J. William Jones uh, in that book. And that's the first time I came across him. And as a Baptist, uh, seeing uh, Jones' very strong uh, connection with the Baptist denomination. Uh, he was basically doing just about anything you could do, uh, denominationally speaking, in the 19th century. Uh, he grew up Baptist, uh, went to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, had uh, visions of becoming a missionary in China. And the only thing that prevented him from doing so uh, was uh, the Civil War um, and the secession of South Carolina in uh, December 1860. And so that set him on a different path, and he ended up becoming a chaplain in the 13th Virginia in the Civil War and presided and uh, chronicled these Confederate revivals that began in late 1862 uh, and existed in some form throughout the course of the war. And so that really shaped the way he interpreted both his, uh, his Baptist identity and how he interpreted what he saw as his, uh, what I would argue is the, the animating uh, feature of his life, which was to kind of uh, be this apostle of the lost cause. I don't, I don't use that, um, that, that term just to, uh, you know, just to be provocative. I, I do believe he saw himself as, uh, uh, as having this apostolic role. 
And, um, and so he continued to work with one foot in the Baptist denomination, foreign mission board, home mission board, Sunday school board in Virginia. He wrote for uh, the religious herald, four of his five sons became Baptist ministers. And so uh, one reason I wanted to explore him was because uh, in much of the literature that we see about the Civil War and the Lost Cause, especially religion, that's what I, what I focused on, religion in the Civil War and the post-war period. Uh, there seems to be this uh, uh, scholars who, who talk about the de-emphasis on denominationalism. Uh, and that was something that I felt like uh, Jones' story really didn't align with that, that, that really he remained a very firm denominationalist. And uh, for him, uh, it, it seemed like he was the, um, the, uh, the, the perfect guy to focus on if I wanted to study religion and public memory at the same time, focus on this, um, on this denominationalism, which I felt was very strong in, in his life and can continue to be throughout his life. Uh, and then at the same time, weave that into some, some modern day themes about public memory. Uh, and, and as I mentioned before, there's certainly some, um, uh, some I don't want to psychoanalyze myself too much, uh, but, but I grew up in a context where uh, the virtues of, uh, of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, those were axiomatic. And so it was actually um, a, a lot of soul searching myself, um, seeing my, my own complicity uh, in, in, in promulgating that lost cause mythology, uh, and uh, especially the way that it decentralized race from discussions about the Civil War. Um, and so, and that's something that I think is very relevant today. Uh, sadly, it, it continues to be uh, very relevant today. Uh, but that was, that was why uh, Jones just seemed to be, I had one professor mention to me that the fact that, that no one had, had written a a biography of Jones that it seemed as though maybe I had found a bird nest on the ground, and so that was uh, that was what I needed to, to say. Okay, this is this is this needs to be done, um, and I was very fortunate to be able to complete it. As you dig deeper and deeper into Jones' work through your book, it's it's abundantly clear that he influenced so much of Southern thinking. How did he have such a broad and profound reach? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, one way was through his uh, denominational ties. Um, I, 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 I tell people that that for the Baptist, uh, he's often uh, in he's in these denominational meetings. He, he's got his, his hands in everything. Uh, he's he's a writer to Baptist newspapers. Uh, he is, and he's often invoking um, what he would interpret as Confederate virtues. Uh, these these white Southern virtues of Robert E. Lee. Stonewall Jackson, Jefferson Davis, he's often bringing those into his, his Baptist life. In fact, sometimes he would be working as an agent for a, a Baptist organization, and then he'd, he'd drop a speech on Robert E. Lee. And, and for him, there was no conflict there. there those theme, those uh, themes seem to be of a piece. Uh, but then uh, in the, um, I, I guess you could say the Confederate world, uh, he was also, he was an editor of the Southern Historical Society Papers. And he did that for uh, you know over a decade, uh, and that's probably what extended his reach as much as anything else. Uh, some people uh, would go as far as to say that he was shaping the lost cause through his redaction of everything he was putting in those papers. He wasn't writing them all, but he was the one who was deciding what was where, uh, when it was published, and uh, so that. And then on top of all that, he writes these uh, these opuses on uh, Lee. Writes two massive volumes on Robert E. Lee writes another volume on Jefferson Davis. Uh, and so, of course, that makes 
uh, Jefferson Davis had become, for some white Southerners, a pariah after the Civil War. And Jones is part of that rehabilitation of Jefferson Davis's uh, reputation. And then he goes as far, Jones does, as to write a, a school history textbook. Uh, and so now he's even, you know, inculcating these Confederate virtues in, in youth. Uh, and and, and there's, there's plenty of literature on how white Southerners did that. And so there, it's really his, his influence. It's hard to, to overemphasize how influential uh, that he was. And it's, I think it's mostly through those publications and through his speaking tours. Now, give us a snapshot into what you mean. Um, help our listeners understand what you talk about the lost cause. What do you mean by that? Sure. Yeah, I, I have um, my academic definition that I like to share with students, and then I have my snarky definition. Uh, my, my academic definition, I would say, I borrow a term from historian Lloyd Hunter, who describes uh, the lost cause as a sacralization. Uh, and so I, I talk about the lost cause as being a, a sacralization of white Southern memory that often uh, entailed a veneration of Confederate uh, leaders, an apology for the Confederate cause. And by apology, I mean a defense, a defense of the Confederate cause. Uh, and, um, and, and something that was spread primarily in an attempt to preserve a distinctive white Southern identity vis-a-vis -vis Northerners in the post-war period. Uh, now, that's my academic definition. My, my snarky definition is that the lost cause is the way the South won the war, uh, or at least the way that they told the story of the war in a way that uh, not only lionized uh, the Confederates, especially Confederate leadership, but also um, puts race uh, and, and slavery to the periphery, as if this was a story you could tell without race being central uh, to that narrative. Um, so th those are the ways I, uh, I normally try to, to describe the lost cause to people. You wrote, to Baptist, he invoked the virtues of Confederate leaders when extorting his audience to living holy lives to ex-Confederates. He lauded spiritual qualities in Confederate leaders that he felt transcendent, sectarian, and partic particularities. Walk us through the, the theological veneration of Confederate leaders uh, among Southerners. Sure. Um, and and what, I, what I do with Jones, and this is um, another reason why I think his example um, still touches conversations that we're having today. Uh, I feel that his role as an apostle was, you know, you think about the biblical apostles, um, as you know, I hope I don't make any of my, my New Testament colleagues angry uh, by, by defining apostleship this way. Uh, but uh, apostles, as a preserving a faithful narrative, uh, preserving the gospel, spreading the gospel, and at the same time, appointing uh, their followers, their listeners to incarnation of, of godly virtue in, in, in Jesus Christ. Uh, and so I see Jones, even though he never explicitly described himself as having this apostolic function. Um, I, I think he has all the earmarks of being a, uh, a, an apostle in the sense that he is trying to preserve a faithful narrative of the Confederacy, one that he says Robert E. Lee asked him to do. Uh, so he now has the, the personal commission from Robert E. Lee himself. And at the same time, he wants to direct people toward these incarnations of uh, Confederate virtue. And, and, and as I think about it, um, I, I see the post-war South as being this uh, Southern soul without a Confederate body and without 
the uh, the Confederate government. I, I think white Southerners were, um, whether uh, consciously or not, looking for embodiments, looking for incarnations, uh, and and I think they found them in Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Jefferson Davis. And I think Jones was a big part of that. Um, there were some uh, people who narrated the, the stories of the Confederacy uh, and didn't emphasize leadership as much, but Jones tends to want to do that. And so I, I argue in the book uh, that, that they become for him these incarnations that he can point to for a disembodied South. Um, and you know we could bring that forward and say that the monuments are, are doing something very similar as well. Uh, but I think that that's what theologically where he's um, he's certainly drawing on them in such a way that he thinks they will be the model, uh, the icons for a, a post-war South. Um, and, and hopefully in his mind, continue to preserve that, that gospel uh, of the Confederacy. You go on to write, uh, Jones was generally unsparing in his treatment of Northerners. He portrayed Southerners as more religious Addressing religion in the Confederate Army, he affirmed in no armies in the world history has there been so much of an evangelical uh, religion, genuine piety, or active effort for the salvation of others. Take us a little deeper into, um, I guess, the religious rationalization of the Confederacy. Uh, yeah, with, with Jones uh, himself or, or in general? Yeah, just kind of, uh, you know, Jones, but then also kind of him, he's creating this narrative that, you know, then becomes the the dominant theme for, for Southerners looking back at the war and moving forward. Yeah, certainly. And, and what he's he's doing there when he's talking about the religiosity of the uh, the Confederate Army, of course, there's mythologizing there. Um, if you were to look at the actual numbers, I mean, you have uh, Civil War historians who who talk about the, the religiosity of Northern troops and Southern troops. And, you know, those percentages can range from you know, 10 to 20%, maybe as high as 25% of active church going uh, soldiers in the, the armies before the revivals of, um, uh, of the, the 1860s to, uh, and, and onward. And what Jones is doing is I think he's looking at uh, those revivals that again, begin you know, midway through the war I think he interprets those as uh, divine approval of the Confederate cause. Now, what he doesn't mention is that there were uh, religious revivals in the, the northern armies uh, and that, that had more conversions than, than you see in the, the southern armies, but that's not his point. He actually writes a, a massive volume. Probably his most well-known work is Christ in the Camp, which became for many people kind of the way of um, understanding religion in the Confederate army. And so he sees these revivals as just uh, proof that, that God has in, endorsed the Confederate Army, that God has blessed the Confederate Army. And, uh, and, and as many uh, of our listeners will, will know, I mean, if you look back at the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, much of what we see in the Hebrew Scriptures is written from the perspective of a people who uh, are defeated, but at the same time, uh, believing that they're chosen. Uh, and, and, and so, you, you know, whether it's uh, you know, Assyrians or Babylonians or Persians or Romans, uh, you, you have those dual themes of being defeated and yet being chosen. You know, Bill Leonard talks about this uh, as well in his discussion of Southern religion. And so Jones is doing that. 
uh, he, he's holding these two themes together. We are chosen uh, even though we are defeated. The, the Union, the North, uh, they are um, tangential to God's plan. Uh, they are incidental in God's plan. We remain uh, central in the divine drama in a way that the North uh, can never be. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. How much do you think this belief uh, affects the way that Southerners view themselves today as, as the faithful, as more religious than others? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And, and I describe to, um, to students this, this, this paradox, it seems, uh, in, uh, among many uh, white Southerners of, um, uh, of, of being a defeated people and yet at the same time uh, a more virtuous people, uh, a people who uh, oftentimes are very patriotic, but at the same time don't always feel like they've been fully reincorporated into the American narrative. And so you kind of, again, you kind of have those, those, um, that, those dual themes uh, working there. And I think it does in subtle ways, I think, um, and sometimes very explicit ways, continues to shape the way many white Southerners think about themselves. Um, you'll certainly have people who will push back and say, well, you know, outside of organizations like the United Daughters of the Confederacy or the Sons of Confederate Veterans, the lost cause isn't being, um, you know, disseminated as explicitly as, as maybe someone like I would, would emphasize. But, but, I mean, I would respond to that and say that the lost cause makes its way into our, uh, our discourse in, in ways that they can be quite subtle, but uh, equally as as troubling. Uh, you, you take, for example, the continued uh, argument that, that's just held purchase for, for 150 years now, that the Confederacy was primarily fighting for states' rights as opposed to something like slavery. And, and again, you have people who would never call themselves uh, lost causers. They would never call themselves, you know, racist. They they would just they see that as kind of axiomatic. That well, of course, the South was fighting for for states' rights, uh, but that's a, that's a carryover from this narrative that people like uh, J. William Jones and and others. He's not the only one, but they kind of codify that narrative uh, and, and so infuse, I think, the, the white Southern mind with that narrative that that becomes the air that they breathe. Um, it's just one of those unquestioned things that, of course, the war wasn't about slavery. Of course, the war wasn't about race. Uh, and by doing that, by talking about states' rights, that's the way they get uh, woven back in into the American tapestry uh, because they see, uh, you know, well, any American, North and South, can can praise uh, the virtues of, you know, of bravery, um, uh, of intrepidness in, in, in the face of uh, – uh, unbelievable odds, you know, and 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 these these aspects, and so yeah, I think that still shapes uh, white Southern memory, uh, whether they would ever identify as as lost causers. 
You wrote, uh, in many ways, the firestorm surrounding race, slavery, prisoner treatment, or Lee's legacy center on how white Southerners want to remember and be remembered. Let's talk about Confederate monuments. Um, is there a direct correlation to um, this identity you talk about in the, in the book with these monuments? I would say yes. Um, these uh, monuments, and, and of course, this is a, a conversation that that that's that certainly has has been around for a while. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I see these Confederate monuments as being reifications of. Uh, Confederate identity, uh, this this white Southern identity, and whereas uh, Jones located uh, these incarnations of Confederate virtue in leaders like Lee Jackson and Davis and others, um, I, I think that those monuments continue to represent this embodiment of a white Southern South, and um, you you see the uh, the fervor with which people will defend these. Uh, and I and I think that they do again, maybe not consciously so, uh, but they they see that as um, uh, kind of disembodying the South again. Uh, the the fear perhaps that what it means to be a Southerner is is nothing more than a a funny way of talking or or uh, deep frying your foods, uh, something like that, uh, and, and wanting to preserve this uh, this identity that they're afraid is going to be uh, to be erased. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think there is absolutely a direct correlation with between what Jones is trying to accomplish, and uh, when these monuments are up, and he's still alive when uh, he, I mean, he doesn't die until the early 20th century, and um, uh, he's alive right, or he dies right around the peak of these monuments going up, right at the uh, the turn of the century, uh, and so he would he would have seen this, uh, and um, he doesn't say many explicit things about monuments, but um, there's no evidence that he would have had. Uh, any problem? He wasn't like some Southerners who, uh, who thought that the monuments were a waste of uh, of time and money. He he's not in that camp at all. So yeah, I think there's a correlation. So uh, a common argument from among Southerners is for not removing these statues is that it dishonors the memory of those who died to fight for the Confederacy. And I've heard the argument that removing these statues is removing or erasing history. Um, what do you say to these arguments? Well, I mean, it's kind of ironic, um, you know, people who are worried about erasing history. Um, I would say I'm, I'm also concerned about erasing history, and that's precisely why the monuments need to come down. Uh, that's what they, that's why they're there. Um, they are essentially uh, erasing history. Uh, they, you know, after Reconstruction, you know, white Southerners take back over Southern governments uh, once the, the federal government kind of backs off uh, Reconstruction after 1877. And then by the 1890s, the early 1900s, you have a, the vast majority of these monuments going up. I mean, you have some going up in, during the Civil War. You certainly have some going up uh, in the, the, the mid-1900s. But there's this enormous spike right there in the early, early 1900s. And uh, as, as I interpret that, I mean, these are basically like trophies, uh, trophies of the redeemed South. Well, they would have called themselves the redeemed South. Like they've taken, the whites have taken back uh, these, these Southern uh, governments. Uh, and so for these monuments to go up, uh, in, in my mind, I realize that people argue um, various you know, different angles here. Uh, but in my mind, I, that's exactly what they were meant to do. They were meant to erase history. They were meant uh, to... Uh, to, to codify a particular narrative that goes all the way back to what Jones was trying to do, 
there is a way of talking about uh, the Civil War where race isn't central, where slavery isn't central. And as soon as you have someone who says, uh, well, these monuments represent uh, these virtues of, of courage, um, uh, these, um, the, uh, these are American virtues that we see here. We're dishonoring Americans who fought for what they believed uh, to be right. Uh, and so all that to me just echoes uh, Jones. And, 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 and I tell people before, uh, I, I think as long as our conversations about monuments are still talking about how you can memorialize uh, folks who are embodying these quintessentially American virtues that we're still playing on Jones' home turf. Uh, he, he has, he and others, and again, not just him, you know, people like Jubal Early did this as well. Uh, they set the parameters for discourse. And so even today, uh, we have folks who, who make no distinction whatsoever between a monument to Robert E. Lee and a, a monument to George Washington. To them, they're, they're the same one. And Jones was part of that, too. Uh, he, he always wrote about how Lee was essentially the reincarnation of George Washington. Um, in fact, George Washington was the figure that the Confederates put on the Confederate seal. And so they, they tied those two individuals together so much that you can't separate – uh, in, in our modern day conversation or the conversation of the post-war South, you can't separate American virtues from Confederate virtues. Uh, and that's how that Confederate identity continues to exist. It, it, it gets uh, tethered to American virtues. And the thing is, and we talk about white Southerners buying into that narrative, uh, but many white Northerners did too. Um, not, not all of them, and many didn't, uh, but many do. Um, as well. So this becomes a, a, a national issue, uh, not just a, a Southern issue. Historian at the University of Richmond, Julian Hayter, recently said um, that they're not waging war on statues, they're waging war on stories in regards to uh, the taking down of many of these statues in, in recent months. When I mean, you look at the, the state of Mississippi, that most county seats have a Confederate statue at the entrance of the courthouse. And oh, let's not fail to mention the disproportionate number of black men arrested and imprisoned in that state, uh, let alone the country as a whole. You know, these statues serve as a symbol of intimidation and institutional racism, especially in, in deep, deeply held Southern states. Um, you know, dozens of these statues have, have come down in the last few months, and yet there are um, there's literally a mountain of a monument, Stone Mountain, that continues to serve as a tribute to the Confederacy. There's There's been prior movements to have these monuments, along with other figures like Christopher Columbus, removed. Um, does this current moment feel different for you? Um, that is a very good question. Um, does it feel different for me? Um, I, I tend to think every time a monument comes down that 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 something has has changed. Uh, but to, to be just completely honest with you, there um, there's always this nagging sense that things aren't changing. That uh, and I and I'll give you if you if you'll permit me, I'll give you a, a story I think about sometimes uh, when and go back go back a, a previous a couple of previous wars to uh, the American Revolution when uh, George Washington read the uh, Declaration of Independence uh, to New Yorkers in 1776, uh, it set off a riot. I mean, people were so uh, inspired or, or, or angered or, or whatever about the, the Declaration of Independence that they uh, there was a riot in New York City, and they ended up later in the day 
tearing down this statue to George the Third, and 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 that that's always in my mind when I think about you know, removing monuments, retelling the story, uh, because just like George the Third, I mean, I think that monument, uh, these monuments uh, today, in the early 1900s were meant to say, I mean, this is who is in charge. I mean, kings would do that uh, throughout history, put a statue of themselves, and it was a reminder, this is who's in charge. Uh, and uh, when uh, New Yorkers tore down that that statue, they, and I don't know if this story is apocryphal, it's, it's too good not to be true, perhaps. Uh, they melted down the statue and then made bullets, uh, and then they used that against the British. And so I say all that to say that these monuments, if they come down, and they start a real conversation about public men, about public memory, about the virus of racism that uh, we are continuing to battle today. Um, then that's that's good. I mean, that, those conversations need to move forward. But um, if they aren't being fashioned into rhetorical weapons to fight racism, to fight white supremacy, uh, then all we're doing is landscaping. Uh, and that's what I'm worried about. I, I am worried. I don't want this to to end uh, with um, with just taking down statues and leaving. And I saw this one cartoon that had you know the, a pedestal with a statue taken off, and then the pedestals had white supremacy on it. I don't want the pedestal of white supremacy to remain um, when we take down statues. So again, I, I think race has to be central to the conversation. And for many lost causers, um, it wasn't. For J. William Jones, it wasn't. And for many white Southerners today, or white Northerners for that matter, uh, race is still not as central to the discussion, the monument discussion, as I think it should be. So what do you think should happen to Stone Mountain? Oh, Stone Mountains, that's that, that's a tough one. Um, uh, people talk about uh, the, I, I'm, and I'm not you know, intimately involved in that debate necessarily, um, but um, I mean, I think it should go. Um, and I understand people talk about the logistical nightmare of uh, of that happening, but uh, we had a long time to think about this. I mean, the Stone Mountain began in the early 1900s, wasn't completed until 1970. I mean, we had you know, three quarters of a century uh, that we could have changed the conversation. Uh, and I, do, I just don't, and maybe this is naive, Andy, but but I'll say it anyway. I, I just don't think that um, something being a logistical nightmare is enough of an excuse to have the largest base relief uh, sculpture in the world, to my knowledge, and what I think is a testament to white supremacy. Again, uh, just a reminder that, um, you know, who's really in charge here. Um, I don't think that's a legitimate excuse for for keeping it up. Um, and I'm and, and and my brother, uh, he works in museum studies. He's uh, he has these debates on a on a boots on the ground level about. You know, how do we deal with public memory? And and I understand that I have a different position where I'm in a classroom just shooting my mouth off about all these ideas I would love to happen, and I'm not the one actually in charge of making them happen. I, I do understand that. Um, but yes, I mean, that's what I think. I think monuments to the Confederacy uh, should be uh, taken down um, uh, away from you know, public grounds. And you talk about cemeteries and whatnot as, as being a different conversation. You know, when the, the Southern Poverty uh, Law Center uh, number tracks these monuments. They don't even count the ones that are in cemeteries necessarily, or, or or even on battlefields. I don't think. But yeah, these ones on public grounds, I think they should be removed. More than half Americans support the removal of Confederate statues, but forty four percent still think they should remain. 
What role does the church play in this conversation? Uh, and maybe more specifically, uh, what should the Southern church be doing in this conversation? Uh, yeah, that's, that's another good question. I mean, uh, I, I think um, in Southern churches, uh, race continues. I mean, it continues to be a conversation. Uh, I know, uh, I don't know if it's still uh, a central part of that conversation. I mean, I've had, I've spoken with churches before where, um, you know, we were talking about what do you learn from studying the civil war religion, the civil war, what does it, how does it speak to churches today? And, and I talk about a few cautionary tales of, you know, studying religion in the civil war and things that, that I'm afraid continue to happen today. And, and one of those is our inability to talk with one another. And, you know, obvious guy says it's, it's become uh, uh, increasingly difficult to have political discussions. Um, and it, it even gets to the point that our polarization seems to short circuit any kind of conversation that we have as if we're, we're, we're speaking different languages uh, sometimes. Uh, and I, and you know, years ago when I was giving one of these talks at a, at a church, that was my answer. I said, here's my cautionary tale. You know, what can happen if we can't talk anymore? Uh, when conversation breaks down to the point that we really feel like we're talking two different languages, because that's what you see in the 19th century. Uh, you see this hermeneutical impasse with uh, Southerners embracing this very literal um, interpretation of the scriptures and Northerners and abolitionists, African-Americans, many um, appealing to the trajectory of scripture. And Mark Knoll outlines this in great detail in his book, uh, The Civil War's Theological Crisis. And he comes up, uh, ends up with a, a pretty I think kind of a cynical, but I think a very powerful observation that it ended up that one of the tragedies of the Civil War was that the theologians that really decided what was going to happen were uh, Sherman and Grant. Uh, in other words, uh, conversation had broken down to the point that w we couldn't talk anymore. And so you, you bring that into the, the 21st century. Um, that's what I'm worried about, that in, in white churches, um, that we can't even talk. That um, and, 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 I, and I know that's a generalization. I mean, I understand some churches are absolutely uh, very involved in, in social justice matters. I, I do recognize that. Uh, but I think there's also this... Uh, this skittishness, to, to, to put it lightly, uh, about talking uh, about race, uh, afraid of where those conversations uh, will go. And we've kind of been, you know, I, I guess maybe we've been conditioned to be, um, to not talk about certain things in certain contexts. And the fact that we're worried about talking about race in church, I think, is a profound tragedy. So some have tried to argue that removing these statues is a, a slippery slope that leads to the removal of Jefferson and Washington and other founding fathers who were slave owners. Um, you know, but isn't removing these statues and monuments and replacing them with something different um, a sign that we're evolving as a society and can can own our history and tell history the right way? Um. I mean, yes. I mean, and and I I would say, um, let's see, how do I want to go at that one? Uh, it I guess it depends on what we mean by evolving. Uh, well, we certainly are changing. If we mean uh, evolving in the sense of uh, we're telling the story, um, you know, the way it actually happened, as opposed to the way that we 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 want it to happen or we think it happened. You know, I, I'm not optimistic in the sense that. Um, we ever get to a point either today or you know, 50 or 100 years from now where we're actually telling history the way it actually happened. 
uh, I feel like history is a story that we tell ourselves, uh, a story we tell ourselves about ourselves, uh, and that they're always going to be, it's always going to be refracted through any number of, of, of things that are impinging on our memory, whether it's race, class, gender, sexuality, whatever it is, uh, all these things are going to be uh, it, uh, part of the mix there. Um, but um, I think that we need to recognize that uh, we are telling a story uh, and just there's no reason for us to feel beholden to people in the early 1900s who were erecting these monuments and telling their version of the story, which we can say, and, and I do say, uh, that that is a erroneous way of telling the story, uh, that that is a white, beyond erroneous. It's one thing if it was just erroneous, that would be reason enough to take down the monuments, but it's also blatantly white supremacist. Uh, that's another reason that, that they should uh, come down as well in, in my mind. Uh, but today in 2020, we're telling our story uh, and it's not erasing history, it's recognizing our role as actors in history. And yes, putting up, uh, you know, taking down a monument and then putting up a, a monument to an abolitionist, uh, putting up a monument to an enslaved person, that tells a story. Uh, and that's part of what we, we should be doing. That's what history is. Uh, and again, 50 years, 100 years from now, our, our kids, our grandkids, they'll, they'll tell the story as well. Uh, but what you do is you, you try your best to make a reasoned reconstruction of the past based on primary and secondary resources. Um, and then, like, like you said, Andy, you own that story and say, this is the story that, that, that we're telling. We don't have to accept uh, what J. William Jones told us uh, in the 1870s or what uh, many of the monument erectors told us in the early 1900s. We have to tell our story here and we have to, we have to start with some honesty about our past. Um, and then from there, tell that story and understand that that, like you said, that that is an evolving story. It will change, uh, and and it should change. That's what history is. Let's bring it back to the book here at the end. It'd be a helpful way to remind people to go out and buy it, of course. Um, <laughs> what what can the life and work of J. William Jones uh, teach us about the confluence of religion, politics, and culture? Yeah, I mean. Uh, I think what we see in in Jones uh, and and two things I wanted to emphasize in the book was you know historiographically that that we should be uh, recognizing how denominationalism denominational identity uh, remained very firm in some um, promulgators of the lost cause that they didn't all uh, de-emphasize their denominational identity in order to to push this this message of the lost cause he he did push the message of the lost cause Jones said but he held on to his Baptist fidelity at the same time. Uh, so I mean, that was one theme I wanted to talk about. And then another theme was, of course, the, the apostolic theme. Uh, and, and so I, I think both of those you know, carry into today, because if you look at Jones, I, I describe him as having one foot in the Baptist world and one foot in the, the lost cause world. But it's probably more accurate to say that he never saw a, a sharp distinction between the two, which at times he does. I mean, at, at times he he says, he kind of defends himself and say, well, no, I'm not preaching uh, Robert E. Lee to people. I'm preaching Jesus to people. And so sometimes he would make that distinction. But I think when you, when you take a step back and look at his career, uh, it seems that he has really merged those two. Uh, and I think that you bring that to today, uh, we just see how easily um, our... Um, 
you know, the gospel or, or what we say about, about our faith can get so uh, intertwined, so interwoven with our political views, can get so interwoven with, um, you know, controversies uh, about, uh, about, about public memory that we can't tell where one begins and one ends. And, and it's one thing to, to, to dehumanize uh, each other in our political discourse, which we, we all know that, that that is happening and has happened. Uh, but we even de-Christianize each other. Uh, our uh, faith has become so intertwined with our politics that we start to think that not only can uh, someone on the, uh, a different, of a different political persuasion, somehow their faith is, is, uh, is insufficient. Uh, somehow they aren't a real Christian. Uh, and so there, I, mean, I don't even know if we, we know that we're doing that. But that seems, uh, I'm painting in broad strokes here, but that just seems to be um, a trend. And I don't think it just started. I think that's been, um, that, that, that's been a cautionary tale for, for many years. Well, to our listeners, go out and purchase Apostle of the Lost Cause wherever books are sold. Chris, thank you for giving us a brilliant historical and theological glimpse into a man who gave shape to why we are where we are today. Thank you, Andrew. I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.